0: Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy, but today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good
1: morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life on this beautiful day in Washington, and I wish all of my listeners uh, an equally beautiful day. Today we're going to we're back on the theme of museums in the digital age. Uh, this has been a recurring theme on the uh, the show for the last couple of months, as a, as I promised. It's one of particular interest to me because, frankly, it is a new area of for me um, of, of interest and also knowledge and I, I feel like I'm, I'm learning by leaps and bounds every day as I was getting ready for the show today I was thinking back when I was a, a young woman, um, younger woman, I uh, I always marveled at what life must have been like for my grandmother who was born before the turn of the 20th century, saw so that uh, heralding uh, moment and then uh, lived through the turn of the 20th and into the 21st century and what her life must have have been like, uh, how she grappled and uh, accessed and and processed all of the technological changes that occurred in that last hundred years. And uh, then I realized that just in my brief life, uh, I've also witnessed some of those changes. Uh, I was one of the first people to write a doctoral dissertation on a, what we called, uh, a a small uh, tabletop computer. It was called an Osborne. Uh, for you techno geeks out there, obviously they did not win the uh, home computer lottery, uh, but it was a small suitcase and uh, uh, was nothing much more than a glorified typewriter. In fact, it took three separate command strokes to make a paragraph uh in in this program uh so i think i too have have really been in uh, the uh the thick of things as seeing how our uh, how our technical Our technological and digital lives have changed dramatically and I think I'm still processing a lot of this information. So I am thrilled to have on my show today Michael Edson. Uh, Many of you know he's a strategist and thought leader who is truly at the forefront of this digital transformation. He has worked on numerous award-winning projects and been involved in practically every aspect of technology and new media in museums. He... uh, was the involved in the development of the Smithsonian's first website and first blog he all and the first alternative reality game to take place in a museum called Ghost of a Chance Michael is a presidential distinguished fellow at the Council on Libraries and Information Resources and he serves on the Open Knowledge Foundation's Open GLAM Advisory Board and we'll be talking about the GLAM project later in the show Michael was a member of the National Endowment for the Arts Artworks Task Force which mapped the relationship between the arts and the quality of life in American communities. And he was named a Tech Titan, person to watch by Washingtonian Magazine. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: Oh my gosh, thank you for having me, Carol.
1: Uh, Michael, as I do with every guest, I think it helps ground uh, our guests and listeners uh, together. Could you share with our audience a little bit about your career trajectory? And most importantly, what experiences or aha moments do you feel have most influenced your career path?
2: Hmm. Well, um, I still still feel like I'm starting my career every day. What you said in the introduction about... um, coming to grips with the, the the rate of change over the last century and even in our own careers really struck home with me. And it's, it's one of the things that makes this profession or just in fact trying to be productive in any aspect of, of society now. So challenging and frustrating and invigorating and, and exciting is, is, is the rate of change is just something that we've never seen before in, in human society. And I think we're only getting started. So I I uh, have a liberal arts background. I grew up here in D.C. coming in and out of free museums. And it really, uh, in a lot of subtle ways, made me who I am. Um, being in Washington, you know, uh, the, the centerpiece of Washington, maybe one of the most important cities in the world, is this complex of free museums. And that I realize now as, a, as, a, as an old guy Really made a strong impression on me that, that a society would make its its glorious statement not as a as a military memorial or or a, um, something hubristic hubristic or self involved but a an institution of learning um, that that's, that's fairly significant.
1: That's very um, interesting, uh, Michael. Do you consider yourself a geeky kind of guy? Do you like? Did you growing up? Did you like technology? Uh, per se, I mean, you said you were you had a liberal arts background. I find that interesting.
2: Yeah, no, I I, I, um, I re- remember when the school I went to got its first. Well, I, I remember the compulsory um, computer training sessions where we, in math class, tenth grade math class, algebra, we spent a week in a computer lab. It had a teletype machine connected to a mainframe computer somewhere, with a, two suction cups that attached to a telephone receiver, uh, and we would type teletype commands and get it get a get a computer somewhere to execute uh, algebraic functions, and that was interesting in its own way. It made an impression on me. Um, later, we got an Apple early early Apple computer. I think we had to get a parent to donate an old television machine, um, but it seemed. Uh, yeah, I took it for granted. It didn't seem that, that it would certainly be a part of my life. Um, and it, it wasn't until I was working at the Smithsonian, my first job was cleaning plexiglass. Uh, I was a starving artist guy, and um, that was the only job I was really qualified to do at the Smithsonian. Um, so I had a job, $10 an hour, cleaning plexiglass cases in the basement of the Freer Sackler. And I was vaguely aware of this highfalutin, new media stuff, CD-ROMs and scanners. And um, I did own a computer at that point, a very rudimentary Mac 2. I think it had 20 megabytes total of memory. Um, I can't even calculate how many thousands of times less powerful it is than the phone in my pocket. Um, but I was, I was cleaning plexiglass and, and changing light bulbs, and I heard a curator, a guest curator training docents in a gallery. Um, the exhibit was Ancient Japan, and she spent about 45 minutes teaching the docents about the peopling of the Japanese archipelago 20,000 years ago, I think. And, and her talk was enthralling, but she was referring only to a very small map, silkscreened on the wall with no text. Everything she said was gone uh, present in the minds of the dozens, but a visitor to the museum would have no idea how exciting and fascinating and compelling this deep information about Japan's ancient history was. And it kind of struck me at that time that maybe these CD-ROMs and scanners and computers might be a way to start telling those stories. Um, and and around that time, there was a television series on um, by Michael Wood, a British historian the series was called legacy and mr wood had a very direct compelling style of talking about the birth of civilization the birth of civilizations around the world and that made a big impression on me too that you could talk about the things that museum talked about in a different way um and then of course uh, in the back of my mind was Ken Burns. His Civil War series made a huge impression on all of us, really opened up whole new frontiers of storytelling and, and thinking about, talking about, engaging with history. That was an amazing phenomenon. I think maybe now uh, it, it occurs to me that that Ken Burns Civil War series was, was the equivalent of Alex Haley's Roots, um, which happened, I think, in the 70s. It just it riveted the public. So all of these things came together in a gigantic... Vacuum at my museums at the time. We'd spent 10 years focusing on bricks and mortar projects. We built the, the Sackler Museum out of a big hole in the ground and we renovated the Freer and we popped our heads up after a decade of that activity and, and digital was right there in front of us. Um, so, so one thing led to another and I, I slowly took on more responsibility and founded a technology department at the Freer Sackler, technology and new media, and then went to the American Art Museum Um, to help with their reopening in 2003 through through 2008, and then since 2008, from 2008 until very recently, I worked as a digital strategist, the director of web and new media strategy in the office of the chief information officer at the Smithsonian, and now I'm transitioning to a more operational role. So every day has been a new challenge, a new new freak out, a new um, head-slapping amazement at what has happened with this vast information network that we're all sharing in.
1: Wow, fascinating yes you 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 have been uh... at the the forefront of this um, i am fascinated uh... by this this term called new media strategy uh... you know we uh... we we have uh... strategic plans uh... you know love them or hate them uh... all mu- museums and organizations seem to have them uh... uh... educational strategic plans long-range plans plans, operational plans, you know, boy, you're making me you're
2: making me you're making me nauseous (laughs) just thinking about it.
1: So so okay, um, so I'll make you more nauseous. What's a new media strategic plan and how can you or, or strategy and how can you even begin that given the what we've just talked about, the speed at which things are changing so rapidly.
2: Well well let me ask you a question, Carol. So you you do this stuff for a living. You go into to hundreds of different museums and cultural institutions and you help them think about what they're doing. And um, it's, a, <laughs> it's a leading question, maybe a rhetorical question, but you know, how many times have you really seen one of those strategies, one of those plans that you, you talked about used as a, as a tool, you know, brought out onto a conference table at a critical moment and, said, and used to say, our plan says we go that way. You know, how many times have you really seen those kinds of documents used as a tool? Not very often, I would guess.
1: No, no. I, you know The, 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 the interesting thing, uh, and I know we're going you and I've talked about this in our, our previous conversations uh, getting ready for the show, museums, by their very nature, are slow. They are slow to adopt. Uh, about anything, um, and and partly that's a good thing because you want people to make slow and careful and thoughtful decisions about how to use their funding. I mean, after all, they're nonprofit organizations. How to care for uh, their collections? How to manage and maintain those collections, and how to make them accessible? It. it i What I see happening right now in the field is that, given the changes that are made are being made in the in the technological world in our digital world. Everyone at the museum, or most people at the museum, are really sort of wide-eyed, uh, hoping, <laughs> hoping, you know, that that just like on the uh, subway cars or a bus car, you know, where sometimes if you're having to stand, I know in New York, and sometimes in here in Washington, we have to do that, uh, and and you 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 grab on to that strap that's above your head and you hold on for dear life and, you know, eventually you get where you want to go. And so I'm, I'm seeing that many of our institutions and colleagues are really trying desperately to find that strap.
2: <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great metaphor. Because, of course, of course, the, 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 the purpose of the whole thing, of the exercise, isn't just to find the strap. It's to, you know, get where you're going. It's to figure out where the car you're in is actually headed. Um, right. It, it may be comforting and lovely to hang on to a random strap, but if you're in the wrong car, headed the wrong direction, you're screwed. Um <laughs> So, and there's, there's. Yo, Oh,
1: ab, ab, absolutely. And I, you know, I think the other issue that or trend that I that I've seen that is you know slowly but surely beginning to to shift because of 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 your work and and others. You know, we've we've had Max Anderson on the show and Nick Honeyset. Um, is that technology for a long time was really in two departments and those departments didn't talk to each other one was the exhibit department and that technology was in the form of screens or various media and the discussion was where do we put the screen how many screens do we have it was really sort of hardware driven and that was how do we create you know how do we use technology to create or augment the exhibit experience and then in the other other side of the museum, usually way down in the basement, were the people who were working on the website. And uh, they too were interested in that, you know that in technology, but only again, for, pushing out information, uh, you know, what are the hours of the museum and what does it cost and how can you get there and here are our shows, I mean, it was, you know, for uh, many of us have to admit that they are glorified brochures that are just electronically available and that's not a bad thing, but if those are your sort of two lenses of looking at, at digital technologies, it's tough to be, you know, sort of, as you say, find where that car is going.
2: Yeah, and I think that's um, that loop ba- loops back to your original question, which is, what is a new media strategy, and what are these documents supposed to do? And and y- y- you know, I'm no expert on this. There are a lot of people who are who are deeply trained in the lore and and research and analytics of corporate strategy, institutional strategy, nonprofit strategy, and I try and read as much of, of their work as I can. But I've found that the best strategies are just are just stories. They're, they're ways of thinking about, they're ways of building a shared language about what happens when we come to work every day, um, what's important and what's not important. Um, uh, I read recently Clay, Clay Shirky, always fascinating read, always always provocative, got to pay attention to, wrote a piece about the future of newspapers. And, and in that piece, he described organizations as frozen decisions. So, wow. if you're an organization, um, you you lock, whether explicitly or implicitly, you lock certain assumptions in place to prevent you from, as he puts it, going on random walks or excessive navel gazing. So, when you walk into work in the morning, you expect certain things to happen, certain ideas to be at play, certain goals to be shared among the staff. Um, and and the trick, I think, now is to unfreeze. <laughs> some of those assumptions and put more ideas at play. Um, And that requires really building a shared vocabulary, a shared language, a shared set of assumptions about why it is we receive funding, what impact it is we're supposed to have in society, uh, what it means for us as citizens, parents, um, spouses, learners, caregivers, to live in a world that has soon, well, currently three billion internet users, um, (laughs) almost seven billion mobile phone subscriptions, uh, um, a world of still dramatically increasing computer power, um, the power to manipulate the genome, uh, the power to manipulate individual atoms, uh, shape the, the human species, a world of 400 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere. What does it mean to live in that world? And and what obligations and responsibilities do our memory institutions have to help society in that world? Um, those well, are that, very yes.
0: Yeah. No, those
2: are so so strategy, uh, thanks, in,
1: Yes, thanks for putting that in into uh, into some very concrete. Uh, uh, terms for us. Uh, We're going to, I hate to cut you off just at this moment, but I I know you're going to leap into another very important uh, discussion. Uh, We are going to have to take a very brief break uh, as we are required to do, uh, but please join us, uh, continue to join us. Uh, This is, as you can tell, a fascinating discussion. Michael and I will be back in a moment. Again, you're listening to Museum Life, and I'm Carol Bossert. Stay tuned.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
4: Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time.
3: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. As you know, I'm here having a lively and wonderful discussion with Michael Edson. And right before we uh, took a break, Michael was talking about uh, making sure that strategy is really uh, good storytelling and making sure that everyone is uh, uh, talking the same language. And he used one of my very all-time favorite terms which is creating a shared vocabulary it just made my little heart sing because I I, I too having uh, developing uh, a variety of strategic plans over the years uh, the things that are most successful are when the the planning process creates a shared understanding and direction and trust to, and vocabulary to yeah, know what Fuhr- we're talking about
2: Carol, you're making me remember some training I did a few years ago for to be a scrum, an agile scrum project manager, a scrum master. It's a, it's a form of project management tied to software development. And, and the studies in this that back up this practice show that so many projects fail because the team lacks a shared understanding of what done means for wow. every task. And, yeah. and, and, and I think that connects really directly to what we've been talking about, about building a shared vocabulary. When I say um, big, when I say scale, when I say impact, um, when I say educate, <laughs> do I mean the same thing that uh, you're understanding or that a leader's understanding or a funder or a patron? And I think that's always been, a problem, But I think now that um, it's possible to do so much more online, reach so many more people so much more quickly and have such strange and wonderful kinds of impact in the world, the gap, uh, the, the possibility, the risk of a, a, of a lack of mutual understanding about what we're talking about is, is so much greater. Um, I think communicate, 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 communicate. Um, is the only way to go.
1: Well, I agree with you, and so let's start now. Uh, <laughs> you have written a lot uh, about these concepts of scope, scale, and speed, and while we've touched upon them a little bit, why don't you take just this moment and uh, d- define what you mean by scope, scale, and speed, and then we can talk a little bit about how that is, uh, is affecting and will affect how museums contribute to society.
2: Wow. Um,
0: um, no pressure.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, this so scope, scale, and speed. Um, scope is one of those words you hear tossed around a lot, um, and and scale too. Does it scale? How big's the scale? Um, and speed is is everybody knows what speed is. But it's it's a I read recently that the the human organism lacks an organ dedicated to understanding time or speed. It's a very abstract concept. I've been reading about speed and time a lot, and it's, it's just weird. I'm amazed that we can even talk about it. So these three things together, while they're words you use in common speech all the time, I think they take on new meanings um, now in, oh gosh, I'm going to say the digital age. I don't like that term, but let's say it, the digital age. Um, so scope is what we can choose to work on, and we have choices, We really choose. Nowhere is it written in the laws of the universe that a museum has to do a certain thing or be a certain way. Um, Scale is how big that work can be, how many people we can reach, or how deeply we can reach just a few people. And speed is the pace at which we move. And I really think that the world has changed fundamentally, constitutionally, In those three dimensions, but most of us haven't really noticed or thought about it, and really even fewer people have taken action. So I think for for anyone who wants to have an impact in the world, um, any mission driven organization in particular has to begin thinking deeply and understanding the new physics of scope, scale, and speed.
1: no, I, find that, I find that fascinating, and so the, the next question, and I'm actually trying to put myself in the, the position of a museum director or a, a, a museum management team, is when you try to look at that, uh, you know, those, that, those three dimensions, how do you then change the way you answer the question of who is my audience and who is my community?
2: Hmm. I think maybe, I, I, I think, um, l- l- what do we think now? There are maybe 18,000 museums in the U.S., uh, maybe 120,000 libraries. I saw somewhere recently, I'm trying to track down this reference, maybe there are a million galleries, libraries, and archives in the world, GLAMs, it's hard to count, um, and they have all kinds of missions. So it starts with a mission, and that, that really should drive the institution's thinking about um, who the audience is, where they are, how deeply we need to reach them. But but assuming that this is a, 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 a thought experiment, um, your audience can be anyone and anywhere. <laughs> right. um, uh, and I think when we think about local community, local community can be... Um, blended with people from all over the world now. And there are a number of of small and fascinating projects. I was just in Australia for for two weeks working, um, um, speaking at the Museum Victoria Conference and working with museums in Melbourne. And I met a guy um, uh, who goes by the Twitter name of of Scratchy. And uh, he started a project called Lost Shepparton which was a Facebook page of old photographs of the town where he grew up, one of his most prolific, powerful, useful, invigorated fans, users, contributors, lives in Switzerland. Um, There's a wonderful project I'm going to, from the northeast coast of Australia, a tiny little town um, celebrating one of its centennials, maybe 200 years maybe 300 years, um, started a local history project that connected a shipwreck that uh, through which most of the population of the town was um, came from with the other ports of call of that ship. And just with one uh, dedicated library staff member, they built an interactive local history project that spanned three continents. Um, they wound up doing a online training session to teach the uh, residents of the other ports of call from this ship which sailed back in the 18th century how to do oral histories and put them online um, I'm also thinking about um, David Lee King who runs the virtual branch of the Topeka Kansas Public Library um, and uh, he says it's, if I put a great book review up online that benefits someone in Germany um, that's great uh, they can add a comment. They can do their own book review. That makes everyone's experience better. The L- lines between local and uh, global are very blurry now. So I think the first, uh, the first idea in that director's mind should be: What impact do we have? Want to have in the world? And who can help?
1: Ah, uh, those I think are two very good questions. Uh, so that that uh, and just to to reinforce what you've said uh, in the you know in our analog thinking, uh, you know, of course Nick Honeysett tells us that we can't solve our digital problems with analog thinking, but in in the olden days, just you know. Mere 10 years ago, we would start by looking at our, our audience uh, by subdividing them, either by age, distance, you know, we have tourists, we have local people, uh, you know, we, we could subdivide them by socioeconomic, uh, uh um uh, criteria or even interest in our subject, and while those, uh, those, those ways of thinking about audience are still probably you know, valid to some area of, of, of our work, this idea of, of impact uh, and, and what do we want to stand for and how can we uh, use our materials uh, more effectively uh, to create that impact is probably a much better question.
2: Well, I've found it to be a very productive question indeed, and and I don't want to say that local, local, physical, local isn't important. Um, Local, local is hugely important, and I really admire the work that uh, Nina Simon's doing um, out in California and Shelley Bernstein's commitment to local community up in Brooklyn. I think those are brilliant um, and exactly right, but I've also noticed that some of the Large-scale organizations we think of in the world, like like Wikipedia, like Creative Commons, like um, um, uh, some of the big nonprofits, they do the big global thing, but they also empower people to self-organize at the local level um, to interpret the big mission of the the sort of the parent organization down to their own local needs and energies and personalities, and I think that local chapter model, I'm calling it, is a really important aspect of scaling impact for small organizations now. Um, that being said, uh, a, a question that I like to ask um, uh, leadership teams that I work with, staffs that I work with, is, is to think about their mission in terms of what impact they want to have in the world, and then to first... Before they do anything else, look outside, usually through the internet, but look at who is doing the kinds of behaviors they want to see more of in the world, find those people and ask how we can help, rather than trying to build a new thing from scratch under the institution's own brand. And those efforts, those exercises are incredibly illuminating. Um, I know you found... Uh, that, that example that I've talked about, about the, um, Sunifa Henriks Dator, the Pinterest person, who's, uh, built this incredible network from sharing, uh, sharing Pinterest boards of medieval and, uh, prehistoric artifacts, doing the real work of heritage institutions, but in her own time, in her own way. Um, and if you were to stand back and look impartially, at who is doing more uh, more of the work of heritage in the world. Would it be the institution that's kind of sitting back on its heels and waiting for the public to come to it? Or would it be someone like this Pinterest user who's really actively building a network? You know, I think I would place my money on Pinterest.
1: Yes. Uh, oh, I'm so glad that you brought up that uh, that example, and and in your writings, of course, there are many, many more. And as I was you know, reading uh, more of your your essays, and and. Uh, Looking into more carefully some of some of your examples and finding some of my own, what really struck me was that the uh, the internet as we know it today really is so empowering to the individual, and that the 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 individuals who are rising to the top, so to speak, and really. Uh, uh, taking hold of and claiming these technologies are people with great passions or interests, and they are so passionate or caring uh, and committed to their particular interest. As you said, you know, medieval architecture as an example, they want to share it with the world, which is you know to me the definition of a, a of a passionate person, and. Many times those passionate people work in museums, but they don't have to anymore. And, <laughs> I, think that, and I think that that is another issue uh, that we we need to address a little more explicitly. Um, I, I think we address it privately over coffee or, or perhaps, uh, you know, a glass of wine, um, after a meeting about this issue of who gets to own the content and who gets to be passionate about it. And, uh, I think we have to, to now as museum professionals realize that we all do.
2: I think and, that's well put. And I think that, that, um, uh, Chris Anderson started us all, me, in personally thinking about this when, when he wrote his book, The Long Tail, um, where he said that the, the Internet makes it possible for communities of extraordinary enthusiasts to self-organize and do great things together all over the world. And those people were probably always there, but they just couldn't find each other, and now they can. And that's one of the foundational ideas of the whole Web 2.0 paradigm that we don't talk that much about anymore, but we really should. Most of the ideas of the Web 2.0 construct, is, as 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 articulated by Tim O'Reilly, things like um, the perpetual beta, your websites, your projects, your books are always in development, and thinking about your customers as co-creators, those ideas are still as powerful and and rich with potential as they've ever been. Um, and, and I think also um, Michael Schrag wrote an, an e-book, a Harvard Business Press e-book called Who Do You Want Your Customers to Become? And I think that's an incredibly powerful question for museums, for, for knowledge institutions to begin asking themselves. What kinds of citizens do we need to help create for us to be a successful society, democracy, happy, healthy, secure um, into the 21st, 22nd century. And I, for one, want to have <laughs> hundreds, thousands, millions of extraordinary enthusiasts taking the work of history, knowledge, culture uh, into their own hands, questioning authority, um, doing their own research. Uh, that's the world I want to live in. And I want more of those people. And I think that museums are ideally situated, museums, libraries, archives, civic institutions of all kinds are ideally situated to help create those citizens. We need, it's really all hands on deck.
1: Mm wonderfully put and with that we're going to take our second and last break of the show um, but please stay tuned because Michael and I have so much more to talk about uh, and we'll try to talk fast after uh, after this very very short break I know Michael has uh, invited uh, some of his uh, colleagues to uh, connect with him during this conversation on Twitter uh, so please do so and of course you can You can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net to talk about this show or any other issues you feel that we should be talking about. We will be back in just a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world.
4: With Arvin Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
3: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brains firing really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion
4: counts. Working for you with Arvin Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Welcome back. Uh, I'm Carol Bossert, and, and I am here today with Michael Edson. And during the break, Michael noticed that there were a couple of questions that came through on his Twitter feed. So, Michael, do you want to uh, um, mention those questions yeah. and uh, try to do a, a, a quick response?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there, I'm looking at the Twitter hashtag museum underscore life uh, And I see one question from Extroverted Museum, Extroverted Muse, who says, in addressing small museum leadership on museum social media issues in 2015, what deserves uh, emphasis or omission? Um, That's a great question. And boy, I wish that I could spend more time focusing on small museum leadership issues and small museums in general. I think, according to AAM, American Alliance of Museum Statistics, most, the vast majority of museums in the U.S. are very small operations and they face distinctive and unique challenges. But I think um, uh, for most of them, if they're not, if the leadership team isn't thinking about spending time on engaging with the challenges and ideas of, of digitization, new media, social media every single day, then I don't think... They're doing their jobs. Um, Now, that's a a strong statement, but um, given what the Internet is, does, and can be, um, I can't think of a more important thing to be focusing on. And there's really no penalty for being late to the game as long as one starts, um, begins, and steps on the gas. Um, I often think about the American Alliance of Museums museum. Uh, Certification program. It asks very few questions about technology and new media commitment, um, investments, and accomplishments. Uh, There's, as I remember, a 20 or 30 page questionnaire about building maintenance, but almost nothing about what we would call technology or new media. And I think that's got to change. If there was a leak in your roof, you wouldn't think twice about patching it. Um, And often, all too often, investments and just thought leadership in social media and new media go unserved. So engage, put it on the calendar every day, focus on it. Um, I, I've sometimes said, uh, think about where you need to be a year from now, what you need to get done, or you should resign in disgrace and start doing it. And I've been amazed at what organizations have accomplished when they take that mindset.
1: Very, very good. Uh, very, very well put. Uh, and I know, um, people from AIM listen to the show. So, uh, Uh, I hope they take note on that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, You know, I I, I think as we talk about this idea of, uh, we've talked about scope scale and speed and uh you know the greatest of these may be speed uh you know there there are no guarantees in this world except that we won't be at the same place next year as we are this year uh technology is as you mentioned earlier is moving at huge and fast and amazing clips uh i, I whether it's the genome project, whether it's uh, little tiny uh, miniature robots, all of these things are really changing the way we live. So, how do we, as museums, prepare for this future that we can't quite understand, but we certainly sort of want to be there uh, when it arrives?
2: Mm, that's very beautifully put, and and I want to underscore this this sense that things are changing. Um, John Cotter, who's been studying global business for 45 or 50 years, he's the somebody, somebody, somebody professor emeritus of business strategy at Harvard University. He he says no matter how you measure it, um, mergers and acquisitions, uh, new business creation, patents, the, the the world has sped up and will continue doing so for the foreseeable future. And if you sat a bunch of managers from the 1960s down, and told them what they would expect to accomplish now, what they would be expected to accomplish now, they would, they would faint with disbelief and terror. Um, you know, 10-, 20-fold increase in profits or productivity in a year would have been unthinkable to a manager from the post-World War II generation, and yet we still manage our knowledge and memory institutions in very much the same fashion as we managed them back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, from what I can tell. Um, so I think the, the, uh, the, the, the cha- first challenge of dealing with a rapidly changing world is understanding that it's changing rapidly. Um, it sounds, uh, sounds simple, but it's uh, amazing to me how few institutions have really spent the time to think about what it means to live in this world. And I have to say that the thing that's driving this forward largely is something called Moore's Law, uh, Moore's Law is the rule of thumb that says uh, the power speed of a computer chip of a transistor will double about every year, 18 months. Um, that has been true for the last half century and most physicists expect it to be true at least until mid-century at which point a thousand dollar PC, the kind of thing we could go to the uh, you know staples and put on our credit card right now A $1,000 PC will be either the size of a dust particle or, and I'm quoting this directly uh, out of uh, Michio Kaku's book, The Physics of the Future, a $1,000 PC by 2045 will likely be a billion times more powerful than the brains of every human being on Earth combined. That's going to drive unbelievable new business creation, new social tension, new opportunities for happiness and mayhem. And uh, if an institution isn't leaning forward, changing, thinking hard about what that means, the, the future will—they'll be able to see the Doppler redshift of the future racing away from them faster than they can run.
1: <laughs> I love that metaphor. Uh, and you know, as you were talking, um, and you said. That museums need to embrace the fact that things will be changing and that they just need to change with it. They need to be more nimble. Uh, I, the other thing that crossed my mind is that they, we need to become more comfortable with change. And I think as human beings, we're, we're not particularly inclined to be comfortable with change. Uh, we want to stay on top of things, which means that uh, we want to make sure that at some point, uh, going back to what you said before, things are done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you well,
2: know, when there's
1: when when we keep moving the goal goalposts, it's uh it's it's a whole different ballgame, and we become more inclined to be research and development departments. Uh, 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 Like universities, scientific organizations, uh, you know, a a scientist never is really done with their research. They just publish along the way. And over time, a lot of people publish and and knowledge
2: is gained. I think there's a lovely graph that's made the terms, a drawing that's made the terms in software development circles about the relationship between what you know about your audience and how they're going to use the thing you're doing whether it's a publication or an exhibit or a website or an app Um, and it's production life cycle and the production life cycle gets a bunch of money and you spend months or years doing the thing and then you launch it to the public. And that's when you start actually understanding what it is, what impact the thing you've done has in the world in the minds and behaviors of the, of the population. And I think that our memory institutions need to change their funding model uh, and their management model to really think of that launch not as the big champagne cocktail party. Well, we should have the champagne cocktail party, but as the start of a long-term relationship um, to set up projects and teams so they can continually evolve, change, update in response to the real needs, real lives of people.
1: Yes, yes, I couldn't agree more. And, and so, for that museum director who is asking the web developer, well, will it work, and when is it done? Those aren't very useful questions anymore.
2: Well, I think um, most of the most of the wisdom, m- most of the popular websites that we use, um, are developed. In a methodology, not this big monolithic multi-year research and production thing where you pop up at the end and you give a finished prod- product to the public, but through a lot of very small, fast development cycles where you're constantly testing assumptions. So I'm often in the position of telling, um, groups that I'm working with, let's, at the end of this meeting, Let's pick the one idea we think is the most interesting and important, and let's prototype it right here with the goal of we'll walk out into the lobby, we'll show someone the little cartoons we've drawn, we'll um, put up a wiki in hours or days, not weeks or months, and begin interacting, begin testing ideas. And I think that's that perpetual um, beta testing, as they call it in the software world, is really the way... go, It's the way to learn. It's the way to open up a rich, read-write relationship with the public. And and it overcomes a lot of the risk. Um, You know, I'll say to to put a a piece of punctuation on the end of that thought, um, in the strategic planning processes that many institutions use, they can go on for years. And with the rate of change now, whole Technologies, whole ways of thinking will be born, come to adulthood and die in the year between when you start a (laughs) strategic planning process and when you, the ink settles and the document comes out of the paper, uh, out of the printer. So there's a real need to be, to just pick up the speed and take on the future in smaller, more incremental pieces, but really commit. Incrementalism isn't an excuse to be lazy, it's a it's a mandate to commit and do things now.
1: Wow! Um, I so I let's think get out there and do something. Yes, Carol. yes, 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 yes. I'm I'm going to start today. Um, I, I there are so many ways and so many questions in my mind, and I know I promise my listeners uh, we were going to have Michael back uh, because. Well, it's my show, and I get to do what I want to do. Uh, but, 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 uh, but, but this area is so very fruitful. Um, Michael, we've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, what, um, what, one thing that you haven't had a chance to say? Do you want to say? Uh, oh my to gosh! Our, our proverbial museum director in a small institution who now thinks, "Oh my God, I got to get busy." <laughs>
2: Um, <laughs> um, Again, no I think, pressure. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So let me let me try and get my mind into that. We're we're on an elevator ride together. We're on a cab together, and 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 the conversation turns to okay, what should we do? Um, uh, I think uh, the, the 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 traditional management advice probably stands true. Um, think about who you've got on the bus and where the bus is heading, to borrow a metaphor from, I think, um, John Cotter. Uh, Who's on my team? Think very broadly about that. Do I have the expertise I need? And are we having the right kinds of conversations? And uh, beyond that, read, 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 learn, learn, learn. Um, I was just talking to someone who I consider a mentor in software development and web platforms. And I asked him, I said, I've been out of writing code for about three or four years. Um, how can I keep up? How can I get up to speed? And he said, I've been out of it for five weeks, and I feel like I'm a lifetime behind. Things are moving that quickly. So go, go, go. Serve the public. Do what works. If it's digital, great. If it's bricks and mortar, even better. But go.
1: Wonderful. And with that, uh, we're going to close this program today. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show and as promised I will have you back in the coming months there's so much more to discuss in this very important topic Uh, again thank you all for listening to Museum Life we are now in the top third of Voice America's uh, variety channel programming and I have you all to thank uh, for that Uh, continue the conversation and we will be back next week Uh, this is Carol Bossert from Museum Life
0: thank you Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.